Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. Sunday, December 27th, 2020, episode 185, Banking Time. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner, a show about hobby beekeeping, among other things. I'm your host, Kevin England. I get to points of this time of year where I'm very reflective, and I feel like this is going to be an interesting show as there's a number of things in the queue to discuss I suppose I could acknowledge that the title suggests something, and it has to do with this period of year where I always have the most ambitious dreams. An epoch is defined as the beginning of a distinctive period in the history of someone or something. Maybe that's a bit of an overstretch for what I'm going to describe, but I kind of feel that way about the holidays, both for the actual celebration of Christmas and New Year's, and because every year I try to save enough days between Christmas and New Year's to bank time, to get away from the work and chill. All year long, I dream of things I'm going to do, and I actually get excited when the time is approaching. Do you do this? Do you? As I record this, I'm right in the middle of it. So how does it usually go? Do all my dreams come true? Some years it goes better than I could have imagined, and other years I get to the end of it and I'm so disappointed at what became of the things I thought I was going to do. It should be no surprise that most years I have beekeeping things on the schedule, and this year is no exception. Some are fun, and some are chores, but that's okay because I simply take pleasure in getting things done. That includes things that are kind of laborious and hard. But if they yield some outcome, then I'm I'm all for it. I get it behind me. And it's a great way to start the new year. And, you know, from the fun stuff, some of the coolest things in beekeeping that I've done have come from previous holiday epics. You see, this thing, this time period, it affords time Time is something I never have. Time to set aside to dedicate to solving tasks or stepping through some processes. For example, this recording routine for the program, it's fussy. I've talked about it in the past. I have issues with how the sound records. And typically, I record a show and then I export it out. And before I upload it, I have to go through and clean it up. It just hasn't worked really well. In the first block already this year, this year's epic, I focused on fixing some of the sound issues. There's an underlying static in the recording, and there's a bunch of pops and crackles that occur from the voice, and I could never figure it out. I put seven hours in. (laughs) I totally tore down everything that I have and rebuilt it changed out different parts and pieces of the recording system and in the end I figured out that it's not my recording equipment it has to do with certain processes so I changed some configuration in the computer 
and I figured out how to filter on the fly, and voila! I would have never been able to find the block of time to do that in any other period, but this was the time frame and one of the first things I had on my agenda. Sometimes things that require time to do research and, you know, so this week is key in broadening my understanding of certain aspects of other things. And I can talk about that in the show as it has a direct correlation to the things I'm going to present. So, for example, I do a lot of baking and I finally spent some time trying to figure out what is a bee sting cake? I've seen it, but never really understood it. I'm going to touch upon immersion circulators for decrystallizing honey. In the show, I'm going to spend some time discussing the philosophy of Roamite control approaches. And it's a little bit about me, but you'll, you'll get how I'm using myself as an example. As a follow-up, I'm going to share something about polypower. I want to talk about my most recent beliefs and how high ventilation works and what I'm doing about it. I have a short talking point on whether honey is good for growing plants. And I have some other odds and ends that might creep in the show. And I'll end with a short local hive report to document what's going on in the yard. I feel like I'm forgetting some things, but... No better time than the present to get to it. We'll figure it out along the way. Let's go. Roundtable number one, immersion circulators. I call this one bathe in it. Sharon and I have spent some time going through our basement recently, given we have a little more time at home because of COVID. One thing that we talked about while sorting and organizing is that our honey and storage even some from this year, has crystallized, and it's almost all in solid form. It's no surprise, because our basement, as you can imagine, is a little cooler, especially in winter, and as such, it's the perfect environment for honey to crystallize. It's not my intention to go down the path of why Temp does that, but if you're interested, I would recommend to you to learn something about the illuminating work that Elton Dice D-Y-C-E, did on creamed honey as that sheds light on why certain temperatures are haven for optimal growth of crystals in honey. The funny thing is, we in the U.S. prefer our honey to be in liquid form, or as the Brits call it, runny honey, as opposed to set honey. So what to do with honey that has crystallized? It's not palatable sometimes, meaning it's not like creamed honey. People don't like it. Now, the obvious answer is it's not bad, and you simply have to melt away the crystals to get it back to liquid form. The trick is to do that quickly, efficiently, but don't overheat the honey, as you don't want to kill off any of its inherent goodness through temperatures that are too high. So the rule of thumb is warm, not cook. We've talked about that in the past, and universally beekeepers eventually learn a little trick of the trade, that you can take your crystallized honey jar, place it on the dashboard of your vehicle in the morning, and by nightfall, it'll return to liquid form. I think about that dynamic. The interior of a vehicle can escalate. 
And in the case of what we want to do, it can go too high. See, I always have that thing in the back of my mind about safety and children and cars and stuff like that. I think we can agree that we would want to avoid temps that cook our honey. And the problem with the car interior is on a warmer day, the interior can far exceed our desired thresholds. It can get to 130, 140, even 150 degrees Fahrenheit. It is plausible that honey in its natural form, meaning inside the hive, could get to 100 degrees and even 110. I think, I don't know, actually, I could probably go back and look at my broodminder records to see if the hives ever get that high inside. But I think, you know, the rule of thumb is 110 degrees is likely to be the extreme. But certainly 100 degrees is feasible inside of a hive because the ambient temperature outside could be 100 degrees. It's not too typical in the United States, in most regions, for it to exceed 100, 105, certainly 110 is off the grid unless you're in the desert or Phoenix or someplace like that. So the reason I point this out is there are some that saying heating honey at 110 degrees ruins it. Mm. I think if the honey can get that high in nature, my guess is it'll be okay to heat it to that range, especially if you're thinking about reliquifying it. Anything above 110, and I think you're getting into cooking and pasteurizing. And the things inside could possibly impact, be impacted, not just the goodness of the enzymes and stuff inside the honey, but the pollen, the propolis, the antioxidants in raw honey, I think they start to be altered above 110 degrees. I'm fixated on this for this reason. <laughs> I would think you need to be judicious about the dashboard practice and try not to do it when it's so hot out that the temps in the vehicle interior get so high to cook your honey. So that being said, I didn't want to spend too much time musing about the temps inside of cars, but it points out that perhaps we need an alternative way to reliquify our honey. Hence the topic of this subject, how can you melt crystallized honey? Now beekeepers are a resourceful group, and one of the more common traditional takes on this problem is to MacGyver a contraption that puts a light bulb in an old refrigerator, freezer, cooler, or some other container that can be closed. The premise is a long heat that is constant, and in time it gently melts the crystals without overheating it, and thus cooking the honey. It uses a heat over time concept, and that's a great notion, and I'm all for gadgets as, you know, gadget garage guy, but it seems a little bit of a unitasker for me. I don't want to have an old fridge out there with a hole cut in it with a light bulb running in it. You know what I mean, right? To be honest, we're not that challenged by crystallized honey because in our household, we only use it by the jar. And when one is running out, one jar that we're using, and we want to bring another one up, we just heat it in a water bath to melt it off. But, you know, another thing about it is I always like to keep a jar of crystallized honey, even though it's crystallized, because I think it tastes good with peanut butter. 
on a peanut butter and honey sandwich, if you know what I mean. But the thing is, if you have a bunch of it, you want to liquefy a bunch to give away as gifts for the holiday season, given where we are. What to do, what to do. One thing not to do is microwave. Just simply don't do it. What we need, what we want, is something that will get a water bath to an optimal temperature and then hold it for a long period so that a sustained temperature will penetrate the glass and honey and heat it through. If you know what I know, I've spoon-fed you the answer by the title. The modern twist on the solution is an immersion circulator. It seems that beekeepers are starting to discover this through happenstance. And I think 2020 might be the year of the immersion circulator. I know personally, maybe it's because I'm a foodie and I click on things, but there's been so much advertising this season for immersion circulator devices. It's akin to the air fryer, the Instapot, the George Foreman grill. You have to have one of these in your kitchen, don't you know? Kevin moment. By the way, as a gadget guy, we have a bunch of gadgets in our kitchen, but we don't have an Instapot or a George Foreman grill. We don't even have a rice cooker. Hiya. Nope, we simply cook rice the old-fashioned way. I'm a little picky about the things I use, as you can imagine about me. And who has a room for all these things? But an immersion circulator? Yes, we do have one of those, and it's an amazing device, but more on that later. End of Kevin moment. So an immersion circulator. Immersion circulator. Have you made the connection? The term, it might be a little foreign, so let me give you with a related moniker. Sous V. Sous V cooking. That's spelled S-O-U-S-V-I-D-E. People often call immersion cookers sous V devices, but the truth is that's not technically right. Sous vide is a style of cooking. It's done by placing food in a sealed container, typically a plastic bag, into a water bath preheated to a set precise temperature. And certain brands call their immersion circulators precision cookers. The food is cooked slowly and evenly to the desired doneness by the surrounding heated water, which gives you the results that cannot be achieved with any other type of cooking. For the most part, your food won't be over or undercooked. So an immersion circulator. The immersion circulator is the appliance that heats the water bath and circulates it around the food when you're cooking in the sous vide style. As it is, an immersion circulator is just one form of an appliance used to cook things in the sous vide style. If you go to a commercial kitchen, you might see what they call a water oven. These devices cook with a water bath, but use a full chamber to control the temperature. They kind of remind me of a bread machine in appearance and hold a few gallons of water. And they can, of course, hold the water at a precise temperature. So I mentioned before, my Facebook feed has had... Immersion circulators. There's two really popular ones. The one we have is the ANOVA, A-N-O-V-A, Immersion Circulator. It seems to be more popular than the Joule, although some people like the Joule. 
If you've never seen the Anova Precision Cooker, let me take a moment to try and describe it. It's about the thickness of the top of a baseball bat, maybe a little thinner. It has a metal tube. And the dimension of the tube inside is like a roll of paper towels. It has a plastic cap that form fits over the tube with a tilted round disc on the top. The plastic cap slides down over the tube. It's all form fitted and engineered. And the angle of the top is supposed to be so that you can read the information at a glance, see the settings of the device. These things are stupid simple to use. You affix the device through a clamping mechanism that comes with it to the inside of a pot, and it hangs down in a pot filled with water. You dial the setting to what you want, and you turn it on. It starts an immersion cycle. The device has a heater inside the tube in some form of pump that both heats and cycles the water inside the pot. And that's it. That's all there is to it. Now what it achieves is akin to its name. It holds the water at a precise temperature. Its advertising says that it can hold temps from 32 degrees to 210 degrees Fahrenheit. 32. Our houses are not 32 degrees, so how does that work? I think you probably have to put it outside or in a refrigerator to hold it at a lower than room temperature. That's that's interesting. Never really thought about that until I looked this up. But the key thing for us, coming back to topic, is we could set it at 100 degrees, put our honey jars in, voila! The perfect foolproof Never screw it up method for liquefying crystallized honey. And you don't have to sit there and babysit it. Now, I don't know how long it's going to take for that to work. But does it work? Yep. <laughs> Perfectly every time. Unlike the car dashboard method, this will not see any harmful spikes. And you could use something like a large cooler to hold the water and do quite a few jars. We have a large restaurant pot which holds a lot of jars. And the cool thing is you don't have to prep the food containers. You can just put closed jars right in the water and they'll do just fine. How long it takes varies on the honey structures, but I would estimate that it'll finish overnight. But it says, because you can actually go look up a recipe for how to sous vide melting honey on their website, that they say up to 48 hours could be required in a bath of 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, if you wanted to experiment, going back to where I was before, dial the knob up to 110, of course, it's going to finish earlier. Now, I see posts now and again from beekeepers who are using this method with great success. And I thought it would be interesting for those who are more curious about this device, if you got one, to know that you now have an option to use it in this way. I'll say a short aside. Cooking with this device is a little bit different. It feels different. From day one, it seems strange and a novel way to cook with it, and it still does. But every steak, every one, simply every piece of food we have cooked in our Inova devices come out perfect. Steak, chicken, vegetables, 
You could even make ice cream bases, alcohol that, you know, takes forever to marinate in a jar can be cooked and done quicker. The things you can make are pretty wide open, so it's not a unitasker. We often cook our steaks with the circulator and then sear them off with our cast iron frying pan, and the whole time we are eating them, we moan in delight about how perfect they are. So even if, sorry for you vegetarians, you love steak, this thing is worth it. Even for the less expensive lower cuts of meat, it really raises the bar. And it'll cook other things, of course, but I'm looking to experiment over the holidays with some different recipes that use the cooker in a novel way. For example, could you safely infuse honey with it? I'm guessing yes. Sharon placed an order for vanilla beans to make vanilla extract. And I'm hoping in time I could sneak one of them out of the jar and make a vanilla-infused honey. And certainly some other flavors might work. And like a pressure cooker amps up the ability to cook quicker, the sous vide method shortcuts how long it takes for those flavors to infuse in whatever is being cooked. I would ask you as a beekeeper, is it worth $200 to buy one of these things to decrystallize honey? That's a decision you have to ponder. But do know that it is a foolproof way to decrystallize your honey and you can have your steak and eat it too. I'll have links on the website to the two most popular ones, the Innova and the Breville Jewel Precision Cookers, in the show notes. Roundtable number two, using honey in rooting plants. I call this one rooting for honey. If I think about 2020 as a year, because of COVID, a lot of people were home, and especially in the early part of the year, a lot of folks were doing things with plants, back to gardening, growing things at home, and so on. As such, you can imagine that you spend a lot of time looking at Facebook <laughs> and other places, and because uh, Sharon has been doing that, you've seen a lot of different things in the feed, and this one popped up from a beekeeping standpoint. Can you improve the roots of plants you're trying to germinate by coating them, coating those roots with honey? And is it better than conventional methods? I'm going to cut to the chase and begin with the lead and say the jury's still out. I watched a bunch of different reports and it said, in most cases, it's no more effective than water but some do say they see the benefits. One in particular, a favorable case for the outcome, stated that the roots appeared earlier and in more abundance than in several other methods tested in parallel. But there was one key distinction that had to be followed if you wanted to achieve the same success. The stipulation in universal guidance is you must use raw honey. I could kind of say, duh. To be clear about that, the testing scenario that I reviewed had raw Canadian honey paired against a store-bought pasteurized honey. And clearly the results showed that the pasteurized, store-bought honey did not help in the situation at all. So if you don't use the right honey, you'd be better off saving your money and just using water 
Now, is honey better than a conventional rooting power designed to aid in root growth? Again, I'm going to cut to the chase and say that the products that have been purposely developed have years of trials, and over time they're offered for sale commercially. In the case of honey versus rooting powders, the answer is available rooting powders are likely going to be a better choice overall. It is, for a beekeeper, an interesting hypothesis to explore. If you consider the angles, what in the honey might help a plant? Why would someone try this in the first place? Could it be for food? Is it the sugars and the enzymes in the honey that we perceive would make it work by feeding the roots? Is it something to do with the antimicrobial properties of honey that would benefit the root structures? You know, it would fend off the inhospitable bugs in the soil while adding to the good ones. It is, after all, one of the big chemical biological experiments down there and under the surface of the soil. I actually got a book for How to Improve Soil for Sharon for Christmas, as a fact. So along those lines, and another angle I could think of as a beekeeper, is postulating whether adding propolis in some way could be beneficial. You know, normal people don't have access to that product, but we do. Could you make a rooting powder out of propolis? That's an interesting idea, isn't it? Wish as we might, the more prevalent consensus is it doesn't pan out. And from what I saw, commercial rooting powders won out in all of the head-head tests. I suppose you just have to use your honey and tea instead, which is not a bad way to go. I would encourage you to check out the show notes if you want to browse a few videos where the tests were conducted and then see the results when they were revealed. Topic number one, I'm going to talk about that topic that everybody loves to hate, Varroa mites. I call this one seriously. Like anyone else, I have my times when I'm a procrastinator, I'm overwhelmed, I'm lazy, I'm not in the mood. No matter how much passion I have for bees, for example, there are times when I say, screw it, it can wait another day. That's not how I kind of treat my Varroa management program, though. But if you look at the history of my Varroa management, I'm doing something different from the mainstream recommendation. It's pretty obvious these days, especially if you follow the Bee Informed Partnership and or the Bee Squad or some of these other teams that are out there trying to help beekeepers understand ways to combat Varroa, that there's a strict doctrine that you will monitor and treat if warranted. And specifically the monitor thing is where the gray area is, but academics will recommend that you monitor every month maybe even more frequently, but every month is the general recommendation. And the gist is you cannot tell when or how a mite population is going to explode in a hive. It has to do with each hive is an individual and each hive has its own kind of behavior, so to speak, on growth curves and things like that. 
So the safe bet is, across the board, monitor once a month, and if you find a problem, then initiate your treatment for that particular hive. Now the interesting dynamic about all of this is that there's some that want to monitor every single hive in their yard, and there's some that monitor a sample of their hives, and if they find varroa mites, they either treat that particular hive, or when they're doing the sample method, they treat all the hives, which is the other conventional recommendation. If you find varroa mites in some of your hives, and they're all in the same apiary, then chances are there's varroa mites in the other ones. I find that to be sometimes true from monitoring, and sometimes false from monitoring. There are times when I could have two hives that are loaded with mites and the ones next to them have nothing in the sample. So your safe bet, if you want to do it, is monitor every hive every month and if warranted, treat them. Now going back to I'm overwhelmed, I'm lazy, I'm not in the mood. <laughs> I work for a living and you know, I have people who look to me to say, what should you do, Kevin? Uh, you should do that. You should do that. If you can afford to do that, especially if you're a two-hive-in-the-yard backyard beekeeper, it should not be difficult to, when you're doing an inspection, monitor two hives. But when you get to 10, 12 hives or, or more, that becomes impractical. I find that commercial folks are the ones that have come up with monitor a couple hives and if a couple hives turn up with something then treat everything. Um, I will call the monitor every month practice of monitoring the strict method. The strict method. And I have to come back to something that was said in a podcast that I heard. It was the Beekeeping Today podcast where uh, Kirsten Trainer was interviewing Megan Milbrath, and she was discussing the philosophy of varroa management. And what Megan had said is she was trying to express to people in her talks to be serious about it, and someone wrote in and said, you don't need to be serious about it. You need to be critical about it. And when I look at that phrase... I take that to being, you should be strict. And if you look at my conversation from this summer about how I lost one of my hives and the whole phenomena of the supreme hive that I've been bringing up, if I had monitored strictly every month, I would have caught that hive and I would have treated it earlier. But honestly, I wanted to let that hive run to prove the hypothesis that the supreme hive would be the one. And when I monitored all my different hives, that's the one that was loaded with mites. And my correlation was it made the massive population. So if I say the strict method, I think you're clear that that's what we would prescribe to do. Monitor every month, every hive, if you're a hobbyist beekeeper, and treat the ones that require it. The good news about that program is, while it's a lot of work for you, that does not uh, give blanket treatments to hives that don't need them. And the hives that are doing well with varroa mites, if you're buying ankle biter bees and all these other things, 
they're able to do their thing. They're not propped up, which is one of the knocks against just treat them kind of philosophy. I think about it in a different manner, though. I will call the method that I am trying to use calculated. And I come by this way, not that it was advocated by her, but by Landy Simone in a talk that she gave at the Chester County Beekeepers Association annual meeting where she discussed her program. And I would describe what Landy does, and I don't want to put words in her mouth, as calculated. I know that she kind of has this idea that if she treats at a specific time and she understands the biology of the mites coupled with the growth of the hive, she can, in her brain, calculate, and this is what I'm doing. So I'm going to take Landy out and I'm going to bring me in. I could calculate how long it's going to be before that hive is going to see a mite problem. I do that both by my understanding of experience and also biology and common timing, right? Because a lot of people have thought through this. It's not a novel idea. So this leads to the patterning that you see a lot of people adopting. It happens to be the holiday break. A lot of people will tell you who have adopted the oxalic acid vaporization that Christmas to New Year's is the time frame to do your treatments if you're doing oxalic acid. The reason being is if you find a warm day, day in there and you can zap your mites, that gets the mites clear just before that February, April, March time frame when they start building their spring bees and you'll come out of winter with a really strong colony that doesn't have a mite load. Now, if that's true, and you get to early spring with limited or low mites, I don't think you ever get to no mites, then in each subsequent generation of bees that are built through the season, the varroa mites will continue to grow, but they won't be at that threshold where they're going to overcome the bees in the colony. Now, let me, let me see if I can illustrate that better. You know, it's that darn shampoo commercial, Fabergé, Brut by Fabergé. When I was a kid, and I've said this on the show before, but it really stuck with me, and that was from the 1970s, shows you how old it is. They loved the smell of Fabergé shampoo. And what you saw on the screen was one person told another person, and then those two people told another, and those two people told another, and then across the screen they had 20 people in boxes, like a Zoom meeting, <laughs> bringing it to today, and everybody was saying, Brute, by Fabergé, you know, I love it, kind of thing. Well, that's what happens with Varroa mites. The first Varroa mites go in, and they create X number of founders mites that are going to go create mites, which are going to go create mites, which are going to go create mites, and eventually you become overcome and overwhelmed with mites, especially when your hive gets to peak population. So when you think about the way this works, calculated method, I start with a low mite threshold in the spring, healthy colony, they're on the nectar flow, they've got all the nutrition they need, they're doing great good queen she's in there she's building 
bees every day. And through attrition, mites are flying out with varroa mite. They're dying. Uh, they're taking some of the varroa mite out. Maybe you're doing some drone culling and getting rid of some of the varroa mite to keep that population. If you're using a screen bottom board and the mites are falling through, as a beekeeper, from a calculated standpoint, you could say to yourself, I can watch the colony through the period of time to, say, July or August. And I'll come back to that in a second. And say, I could expect the threshold of the number of mites in the hive in February to be low and be a little bit more in April and a smidge more in March. And when I get to June, now it's going to start to get bigger. When I get to July, it's going to be there. And when I get to August, it's going to be huge. And when I get to September, the hive is going to implode, period. And it's because of that they tell two friends, they tell two friends growth pattern that you see. And you can literally watch a really good hive, if you watch it, through, the, through that period do great and just have massive bees in March and April or whatever but then as the season goes on it doesn't seem to perform as well and I think that has to do with the mites are coming through the viral loads coming on there's sick bees and you start to see some brood you know holes in the brood where they're pulling things out and now if I think back to the strict model what would happen here I have to have a Kevin moment when I first started keeping beekeeping, they told you to monitor the mites. And if you had more than 10 mites, or yeah, 10 mites in a sample, you had to treat. Otherwise, you were okay. Nowadays, the virus load that's being bantied around inside the hive is so high that if you get two to three mites in a sample, they want you to treat. Now, I've heard a tale of change winds of change are blowing over the last couple years that even if you see two mites or one mite in a sample you should be treating and a lot of people are now prescribing if i find a mite in a sample i'm going to treat that's kind of tied to the strict method i think that if you monitor every month chances are you won't see mites but occasionally you will see one and you're going to treat i i'm I'm a little squeamish about that. I want the bees to live with mites. I just don't want the mites to kill the colony. There's a distinction there. That's a personal preference, right? If we're ever going to solve this mite problem, the bees are going to have to learn to deal with it at an economic threshold that can harm them but not kill them. And at some point, because of evolution, they're going to evolve. Otherwise, we'll be on this chemical treadmill forever. Because one day they're just not going to flip the switch and it's going to change. We're going to have to make our bees do the hard work. Now, if you're of the treatment-free mind, you're already working down that path, right? You're just going cold turkey on that, but, but hives are dying as a result. Don't want to do that when I consider bees livestock. So coming back to bees in a sample or mites in a sample, if I think about... One mite versus two mite versus three mites. I try to look at the Bee Informed Partnership thing and say, 
If the hive is absolutely loaded with bees, they can tolerate a couple mites. But if it's a smaller population and I'm finding mites, I'm going to need to take care of that. And it has to do with the ratio of mites to bees. Now, as you go through the summer and you get to that peak population and it starts to drop, the common wisdom we've learned over the last number of years is the mites will outbreed the bees and you'll end up with parasitic mite syndrome and some of those other things. So obviously you don't want to get to that crescendo. In a calculated method, when compared to a strict method, if I did my treatments, meaning oxalic acid vaporization, on New Year's Day, and my hive was fairly, if not super clean, coming into spring, if I monitor in February, what am I going to find? shouldn't find anything. They're not even out actively foraging to go out and find mites to bring them back, if that's how it's going to happen. In March, New Jersey, kind of foraging, getting out, doing their thing, but it's not full-blown. What am I going to find if I monitor? Not too much. So there I've saved myself. Because remember, I'm a procrastinator, I'm overwhelmed, I'm lazy, I'm not in the mood. <laughs> Me, personally. I, I don't... And I also, in February and March, and this is important more to my jokiness, I'll take that out. I don't want to be open in my hives. It's still cold in New Jersey in February and March. Now, they say you can monitor your hives in cold. It's not going to set them back. I don't even like breaking my purplish seals till April. So from that standpoint, I'm trying not to go in my hives. So I'm not going to open them to monitor them to learn that the mite load is low because I know I treated them, right, in, in the time frame. Now, if I go in and I look in April, and then I specifically look in May and maybe even June, I think I'm going to pop possibly find mites but am I going to find 10 of them no I'm going to find two or three I hope now if it's a booming colony the possibility is there so in my calculated I'm going to look now because of the supreme hive I'm changing my 2021 pattern and I'm going to see if this works if it's a regular run of the mill hive I'm going to let them run I'm going to let them run to July July 4th is my new target now, coming back to July and August, I always used to tell people, make sure you monitor your mites sometime in July and August. Don't wait till September. And when I tell that to beekeepers that I train, many of them <laughs> wait till August <laughs> because they too are procrastinators and overwhelmed in the summer because, you know, look, summertime is summertime. We always got vacations and other things going on. If I think about where I was last year, I didn't want to wait till August. I feel like August is too late now. It used to be August 1st for me. Now it's July 4th. I want to have monitored and checked my bees by July 4th. And that's on the calculated path. Now don't get me wrong. What I would say to you is, if you have the opportunity, a good day, available day, a free day, and you have the possibility on June 1st to monitor, you should do that. I don't know about April. And the other thing too is in April, you're making splits or you're doing different things. I have enough beekeeping activities in April that I don't want to be messing with mites. Now look, if I were a two hive in the backyard beekeeper, I would do my mite stuff. I would be that way. 
And I encourage you to be that way. But if you're like me where, you know, you're out trying to catch swarms and you got a dozen hives and you're rebuilding the kitchen or whatever else you're doing, sometimes that's not going to work. So, yeah, what's the downside of doing that? The downside of that has to do with losing a hive. Sometimes you're going to lose a hive. You're taking that risk. And what's the trade-off? You don't have to monitor in February, March, April, and May. You'll monitor in June, and you'll monitor in July. And you'll obviously monitor afterwards, being a good soldier, to make sure that it worked. Now, what about the rest of the year? Do you monitor every month? I kind of have a funny thought on this, too. If I just treated in July because a hive warranted it, and then I monitored afterwards, I want to believe that I'm going to have a period of quiet time where I'm not going to have to worry about the mites in that hive. Could it fly off and pick up mites and bring it back? Yeah, you know, the whole mite bomb thing. That's possible. But do I need to monitor in August if I just monitored in July and did a round of treatment? Well, first off, most of the treatments are going to end, and I'm going to finish that monitoring in August. Now, my ultimate goal is I want multiple rounds of bees to circulate cleanly so that by October 31st, I have a good-sized colony that has a good amount of stores going into the beginning of November. If I think about monitoring, if I'm going to monitor, it's going to be October 1st. And if I find something on October 1st, it's still warm enough and operational enough, and I'm actively in there feeding my hives or doing whatever I need to do in order to ensure winter prep, that I could throw on a last treatment routine. So I'm still on the calculated approach. If in the next couple years, and honestly that's more regimented than I have been, to be honest. If you've listened, you know that sometimes I'm a little haphazard. This COVID year has allowed me to follow that pattern. And all of my hives worked really well in this calculated approach, except for the Supreme Hive. And this year I have a plan for that. And also I'm going to smaller cavities and you know, all that stuff, but I'm not going to go there. So I, I think this is a good idea. I think this is what I'm doing. And if you're hearing me not on that strict approach, you know what I'm trying. I'm trying to figure out if I can have a risk-based monitoring system. Now hear me when I say this. If you're too hive in the backyard three hive where you have the time to do all eight hives or whatever number you have you should monitor and treat if warranted every single hive every month through the season in the times that they're operational that's what i would recommend you do and if in time i just can't ever seem to get in front of what i have going on then I'm going to go there too, as much as I hate to do it. And I probably will stop keeping as many hives as I have. Or I'll put some out and, you know, 
do calculated somewhere else, but but be strict at my home yard or whatever. I don't know. Time will tell where that goes. So I wanted to address strict versus calculated seriously. <laughs> I'm not sure that I'm ready to be critical, but I'm also trying to rely on my intelligence to say, I think I can do it this way and still end up with the same outcome. So we'll see how that goes. And obviously, if you follow the program, you'll find out. Topic number two. This is about hive ventilation. I call it the winds of change. There's been a battle brewing, I've noticed. People are getting more and more passionate about ventilation versus closing off hives. I think if you're not following this, most of you are likely following the conventional wisdom, which is to allow a hive to ventilate at the top. I happen to be at a crossroad, which is why I want to talk about this topic. So for high ventilation, before I delve into this topic, I'm going to ask you, what camp are you in? Are you in the corner for ventilation? You provide ventilation at the top of your hive towards the front edge and under the inner cover? Are you doing it by some other means with a Vivaldi board or mountain camp feeder or some sort of quilt board? Do you have a moisture trapping device on the top of your hive? Are you one of those that leaves your screen bottom boards open all year long? Or are you in the camp of closing off your hives like nature does with a tree that has a small little hole? Are you sealing the top of your hive and restricting any airflow? Are you insulating your hives or inner covers? Have you employed a Klaus hive dome? If you've ever seen one of those, it's a polycarbonate plastic thing that sits over top. It is meant to recirculate the air through engineering. And the question is, what are you doing and why? If I think about it, um, most people have an active plan. Anybody that I talk to will tell you this is why and what I'm doing. And they either heard it from somebody else or figured it out on their own. There's others that can't figure out what to do. And they simply follow what someone else does that they trust. Or maybe a mentor told them a long time ago. And so the question about this topic is which is right? And truth be told, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't know. Um, this many years into it, I'm still studying it. But I will say I'm at the crossroad and I'm going in an opposite direction. And I think we need to unpack this a little bit. So why ventilate in the first place? The common wisdom is that moisture kills. It's not the cold that kills bees, moisture kills. There's also the aspect of in the summertime, you ventilate a hive in order to relieve the heat inside the colony and also inside the hive equipment. Let me be clean about that. And also to allow moisture to escape for when they're, um, you know, trying to evaporate moisture from honey, from nectar and such. So if you think about it, ventilation is primarily to clear moisture. 
and to also secondarily relieve heat. In order for ventilation to work, there has to be transfer of air, either through air movement, meaning the wind is blowing through, or some sort of convection, heated air rises. And if we now focus on this time of year, the cold, it is said that if hot air with moisture in it is allowed to come up and come into contact with the surface that happens to be cold because they don't heat the interior of the hive, then it will condense, it will form, um, the, the moisture will form water drops, drip on the bees, kill the bees. We know the story, right? So the different strategies and most common employed way to do it is to ventilate at the front of the hive. You're going to put something over the inner cover, under the outer cover or telescoping cover, a stick, a twig, a stone that lets it sit up in the front. And theoretically, heat rising is going to find its way out through the hole and out through the front opening. And that's how you're going to relieve the situation. But I come back to this. Do you need that? I always look at natural model. Bees inside of a tree. They don't have an upper entrance. They have a single hole and it's typically down at the bottom if you believe what they say. So why, what, why, why do we need one? I think of a lot of it has to do with what we've been dancing around in this uh, show the last whatever is the wooden equipment just doesn't cut it. It doesn't hold the heat. It allows for a farther transformation of heat to cold and so on. And it's a compensation of our man-made equipment. If I think about ventilation, though, and us wanting to ventilate all the moisture out, I think moisture is not as evil as it sounds. If I look at my broodminders and look at the amount of humidity, I know that the bees are maintaining a specific, it's like in the 70% range of humidity, and they, they're pretty rock solid at doing that. I think having moisture inside the chamber is a good thing. It's a natural thing for the bees. And if I think about the New Jersey winter, it's dry and it's not really wet. And therefore they need some of that moisture and they're giving it off through living. Just like we breathe out moisture every time we give off a breath. So do the bees. I also say, and this is a bit of a Kevin moment, that beekeepers underestimate how efficient bees are when it comes to their ability to move air. I was thinking the other day about, I went to visit my brother's house and look at the hive that's sitting there and remember how much air was moving standing in front of that hive when they were actively ventilating. I leaned down in front of the hive and the air came out felt like a blow dryer. It was unbelievable how much was coming through. Hey, if you know me, you know I'm bald. That's not fair. <laughs> I know what a dryer feels like. I was a young man once. I used to have hair. Stop it. <laughs> so if we recognize their ability to move air and humidify or dehumidify the chamber, then why do we want to ventilate? 
We're helping the bees, right? That's the way we think about it. In some cases, I wonder, does the ventilation work against our bees? We've said this on the show, and it's a pretty common idea for air movement. If you're trying to move air, you need a closed space where ventilation movement is able to draw static air out and push it. If you open all the windows in your house and you turn a fan on, it, it limits it. It's a lot like uh, people saying opening a screen bottom board prevents the bees from having the ability to draw the air out of the front entrance. If you had closed that off, the bees could bring air in one side, move air out the other side, but as soon as you leave an open screen bottom board, that's the always uh, prototypical example, they lose that ability and they have to compensate. And they're good at it. But the argument in the summertime is close off your bottom boards, even though that's not good Varroa integrated pest management, and you'll give the bees a better opportunity to control the interior chamber. That's an argument for closing your hive. Now, the same can be said for wintertime. Now, I think I have a distinct advantage by going the polystyrene route because the heat versus cold isn't as big of a factor. And if I'm using wooden hives and there's a lot of moisture in the air, say you live in Seattle or you live in England where there's always moisture in the air, I think I would venture towards ventilation to get that moisture out. Now, I just said that statement, and if you think about what I was saying before, we're relying on moisture to escape on its own. If we closed it off, would the bees be able to take the moisture out on their own? Remember how good they are at moving air. So does our ventilation work against the bees? I don't know. That's where you have to look inside your hive and see, are you collecting moisture? And if so, what's the best scenario to give the bees the opportunity to get rid of it? I also think of this from the perspective of ventilation is allowing heat to escape. And I'd actually like the heat to stay inside a little bit. Because the more heat that can be kept inside the container in winter, the less work the bees have to do in order to generate heat and energy to keep the cluster together. It's all unbelievably <laughs> complicated, isn't it? So, the, the other thing that we have not talked about in other dynamic is temperature swings that create moisture problems. I said in New Jersey, our winters are dry and mostly low humidity. I think that the moisture the bees give off in time, and I learned this through Wyatt Mangum, it's absorbed in the wax, in the woodenware, in the honey. It's held in there. We, we always talk about excess moisture coming up, forming into drops, dripping on the bees. I go the other route. They need the moisture in there sometimes. And I always go back to nature and say, if you look inside of a tree cavity, they have the comb, they have the honey, they have any of the detritus and the, and the wood that's chewed on the sides, that all holds moisture and keeps it wet inside. And then the bees are able to maintain the moisture level that they want. 
So I've done nothing but confuse you about dynamics, <laughs> and you want to know the answer. Should you ventilate or shouldn't you? I think that's a personal preference. Where am I going? Especially with my polystyrene hives, I'm closing the hives off. Now, the polystyrene hive that I have, it's designed to be completely closed. The roof comes down, there's no air movement. I changed that for a practical reason. I mentioned this on the previous show. I put an inner cover, traditional wooden inner cover, underneath my polystyrene hive with a notch. And if you know the way an inner cover works, the notch can go up or the notch can go down. I'm trying to maintain the heat inside the hive equipment, so I want the notch up. And the reason I believe the notch up is the right way in the winter is because the heat can come through the hole, it can pass along underneath the inner cover or the outer cover, and it can go out. If I have the notch down, the heat's going to come up, hit the inner cover, and go right out, and it's going to escape. I want to hold it as much as possible. That's the way I think about it. So that's what I'm doing. Incidentally, I'm doing the same thing on my wooden knives, but with a twist. I was watching different things recently about insulating your hives. And I've seen this trend over and over lately, especially here in New Jersey. I don't know if it has to do with the John Gott factor, that John has been around and telling a lot of people that this is something he believes in and he's got the data and so on to back it up. But 15%, this is a stat I've heard, Etienne, or I, I don't think I'm saying his name right, Tardif talked about this. As an engineer, 15% more escapes out of the top than through the sides. So if you're going to do any insulation of your hive, put insulation over the cover. Now, how do you do that? In my estimation, it's inside the telescoping cover that's placed down over the internal cover or the inner cover. That makes it as close to the bees as possible. And it's an all year long thing. I learned that from my experimentation. So if I go back to what I learned, my mentor in the beginning taught me put a rock, a stick, a twig underneath and ventilate the hive. And I took that one step further and said, oh, I got to solve this moisture problem. I was convinced. I had my own way, remember? I put a box on top. It had an insulating quilt. It had holes for vents. It had insulation on top. And after multiple seasons, I found it just didn't work. It didn't do what I thought it was going to do. And my bees didn't do well by it. And I only had to turn and look at my fellow master beekeeper, Bob Gloss, and say, what were you doing? He said, well, I was kind of listening to what John was doing, and I've put insulation. By the way, I leave it there all year long. So I ditched my quilt boxes, and I put insulation under, and the bees did so much better in the wintertime. Now, how do I quantify better? Well, first off, the quilt box never was wet. And the insulation, according to what John said, was too high up away from the hive to be of any importance. He tried different ways, and, and his method was put it right down. Do I know implicitly? 
I'm only looking at the way my polystyrene hive worked and how well um, insulating the hives did when I did that to know that the bees thrived. They did better in insulated hives, especially if they had roof insulation. So now I have XPS foam, the typical stuff you can buy at the box store, underneath my inner covers all year long. It keeps the heat in relatively. Look, it's not a miracle. Don't, don't get me wrong. It keeps more heat in in the wintertime, and it prevents more heat from going through the top cover in the summer. And if you want to know more about that, look up what John has to say. He's done the math. So if your brain's about to explode, let me help you by saying, either way actually works. I think the bees can compensate for more ventilation than they need, and I think they can compensate for it's closed off. And the obvious answer is upon inspection, if you're seeing moisture problems, then ventilate. But if you want to take advantage of trying to trap that heat a little more, insulate. And as I said, I'm in a time of transition and I'm going more towards insulate. So how do you insulate? You purchase two inch foam insulation, cut it to fit snugly inside your telescoping cover. I would put a conventional wooden inner cover with a notch and in the winter the heat, or I'm just take that word out. In the winter, the notch is up. In the summer, the notch is down. Now, the logic of that is, as I said before, you don't want the heat to escape in the wintertime, but in the summertime, you do want the heat to hit that inner cover and travel forward and go out right away and get as much heat out as possible. Now, the good news is, whenever you put that notch in, whether you put it up or down, because people argue about that, if the bees want it closed, they'll propolize it. So you can't be wrong on that. They usually fix things that they don't like. Now there's one dynamic I want to let you know about. Telescoping covers or outer covers differ by manufacturer. Some of them hang farther over the hive than others and some of them they use shorter sides. If you put two inches of foam insulation underneath your outer cover and you set it on your inner cover, it's possible that it doesn't telescope anymore over that inner cover. Is that a bad thing? I don't think so, because typically the bees will propolize that, but ideally you would like to have that over, so if the wind blows, it can't blow into that crack. So look at your covers and how they sit over it. The other thing about an outer cover that doesn't have deep sides is that when that occurs the outer cover doesn't telescope over and it's sitting on the foam and if the wind blows it'll blow that off and you have to really put either way a heavy rock over it if you're really concerned about that you can skip the two inch and go to one inch and then maybe your telescoping cover comes down now, I have literally run shallower outer covers where you can look underneath and you can see a peak at or literally the entire side of the inner cover. But I don't open my hives in the winter and when they seal that up, they're pretty good. You could actually take a piece of tape and run it around it. 
I'm hoping I didn't <laughs> didn't confuse the issue here, right? I just wanted, you know, some some of this comes up about what are you doing, and it's an interesting topic, and it has a lot of passion. I was on three calls this winter. Two of the calls advocated for ventilating your hive. It was super important. And one of them said, nope, close it up. There's one other factor, one last um, footnote on this. It has to do with pests. Let's consider the small hive beetle. In some areas of the United States, they're a serious problem. And biology suggests that the small hive beetles don't like air movement and they prefer moist environments. So it leads you to think that in a zone with small hive beetles, you might want to lean towards the ventilation aspect of the top of the hive. Now, the bigger pest, Varroa mite, and I wish this was easier, everybody. What I've learned from that is, and, and I would love to know the source of this if anybody has it, but what I've heard is, Prevailing wisdom is Varroa does not fare well in very moist environments. And if you allow the bees to control the space, they tend to keep the humidity level higher, and it's not conducive for Varroa. I have yet to track down why or how high moisture is detrimental for Varroa, but in this case, if you believe in that, then you don't want to ventilate your hives. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, so do as you do, not as I say. And if you believe what I believe, you can experiment with me and go the route of ventilation in moderation, right? This is why I say this hybrid approach. Uh, I come back to one, one last thing, the final thing. I like an upper entrance for my bees, especially in the wintertime because I have all my entrances closed down with mouse guards. If that entrance gets closed, your bees are going to die. It's possible that falling bees will die, and I've had that happen. So if you have the one hole up in the top, at least some air movement can occur, and if the bottom entrance gets clogged, they'll have an escape route too. And, you know, I guess this is the last tip of this, is should go out, check your hives, once a week or so and just make sure the holes aren't plugged. So hive top ventilation, pro or con, insulation pro or con, it's kind of up to you, but I am swinging towards close it up and, and insulate it. That's where I am in 2020. Topic number three, bee sting cake. There's a cake that beekeepers have a fondness for through association for who could not love the idea of a bee sting cake. I quickly looked back at my catalog of shows to see if I ever covered this particular cake on a past episode. Didn't find any mention of it. And whether I'm right or wrong, as I sit here today, I can't recall. So I'll presume I have the leeway to go there and talk about it. The thing that intrigues me about the bee sting cake, other than the name and the recipe, is that there seems to be some creative license about what the origin was for this cake and how it came by its name. I know of a few different tales that surfaced 
Uh, first one is that decay came from a celebration of a battle in which the Germans in the 15th century baked a rendition of this celebratory honey cake after successfully defending their town from invaders by throwing beehives at them. Now, it's well documented that bees have been used in warfare. It was actually a tactic used eons ago. But there's some suspicion as to whether it really had anything to do with the naming of this particular cake. Another explanation that seems directly more plausible is that some royal bakers in the late 1400s were said to have suffered some stings while trying to procure honey they needed for a special cake for the king. Whatever the case, the resulting cake might be fit for a king, but it's not for the light at heart. To describe the cake, it's similar to some cakes I remember my grandmother making when I was young. And given that she was of Swiss heritage, Swiss-Italian, near the German border, it's probably no surprise. It's not a flour kind of cake, but more like a brioche dough with a yeasty, eggy base. There's two round cakes that nest a vanilla cream or pudding filling layer, and it's typically a mix of almonds and honey on top. It is, as one might say, a bit fussy. I see different recipes on the internet that take you through the traditional approach, a moderate approach, and ones that just take shortcuts that are really shadow of the real thing. The funny thing is, it appears that the various recipe providers have tailored the cake to their liking. By that I mean, no two bee sting cake recipes seem to be the same. They have the same kind of building blocks, but they really vary widely in execution. Some of them have thick cakes with two to three inches high and one inch of icing and they're really tall. And others have these dark caramelized coatings and some are light golden on top. Some have chunky almond piece, some have slivered almond piece, some have a whipped cream center, others use pudding. You can tell they're different. Given the disparity, I will simply say it's a two-layer cake with a filling and a topping. That's the only thing they all seem to agree on. I have to think back to what a traditional cake would be in those times. The dough is probably eggy and yeasty. The filling is probably like a custard and not some sugary buttercream or frosting that you'd get out of a can. And I doubt they had slivered almonds in the 1400s. And I think the top should be a golden brown honey glazed concoction almost like a caramel, and would be on the heartier side. If I look back to older recipes, that's kind of what they, they were more dense, and so on. Whatever your preference, sliding up to a slice with a dark cup of coffee seems like it would be a good treat on a mint Sunday afternoon or a special occasion. For this particular topic, I looked around at various takes, and I found one that I want to talk about. I choose the offering from the website thebakingpan.com. It has, in my estimation, the best description of steps and supporting information to express how to make the cake and, you know, give some different tips and tricks. It also states explicitly that it's based on an adaptation of a recipe that the folks at King Arthur Flour put together, which means it probably has some reasonably vetted for success instructions. I like that it had the right mix of 
homage to the components in building what I think would be a more traditional cake. One, the cake is a brioche dough made with a two-step rise, and it has pretty conventional direction that tradition calls for in a brioche. Two, the pastry cream has egg yolks, and it's not simply some shortcut whipped cream style filling. It's more like a pudding in conventional type of cake. And three, the third thing is the topping is not too dissimilar from a caramel, and it includes honey and heavy cream cooked in a way that is a little bit like a caramel, so it's just not simply almonds with a honey glazed shortcut. And honestly, it brings me back to the fondness of my grandmother's cake. <laughs> so first off, the thing to be said about this is it's a commitment. This is not some simply throw-together box mix, and as such, getting quality traditional components is going to add up for a better final product. The other thing to call out is the topping and the pudding style. Well, they're the stars of the show. The cake is going to be rich, a yolk, yeast-based, but somewhat of a drier profile. That's what uh, many brioches are. It's not sweet, and it requires the other two elements to be really good to round out why this recipe has been revered for centuries. I think the best way to proceed, because this is a podcast and not a cooking show, is to give them an overview of the process and hope that you've watched enough of the Great British Baking Show to have a clue about some of the steps of the instruction. Uh, Kevin moment. Suggesting you make this cake is not unlike suggesting a challenge in that show, <laughs> to be honest with you. If you've ever seen the Great British Baking Show, most of the time the people baking have not made it before, and they learn through following instructions, not unlike what I'm about to pass along. And since I'm a closet foodie, and I try to make something just about every weekend, I have come to appreciate instructions good ones, and also understand which ones should be avoided. So hopefully I've chosen well in this recommendation. End of Kevin moment. The cake is made in three components. You make the cake, you make the pastry cream, and then you make the honey almond top, and then you put it all together. A brioche-style cake is made by proofing the yeast, mixing the initial dough, and letting it proof. Then it's punched down, and allowed a second rise, which gives what will be the expected texture and crumb. The pastry cream is a pretty traditional cream made with mixing the base and then tempering the eggs before incorporating the eggs, egg yolks fully. After they've been combined, you finish it off by adding the vanilla and butter for richness and taste. As to the topping, it comes together like a caramel, which, if you've ever made the honey caramel recipe I've shared, it's not too dissimilar. You cook it to a softball stage, 245 degrees Fahrenheit, then you pull it off and you stir in the almonds. I think I personally would make one change. Many versions of this cake called for sliced almonds. I personally don't like the texture of sliced almonds. I think they're eh, cardboardy, especially if they're over toasted. I like my almonds to be coarsely chopped or even slivered, and I like them to be slightly toasted, and I think that's going to make a better texture. Again, 
I don't think in the 15th century they had factory sliced almonds. Could be wrong. 1400s? 1500s? This recipe does something that's not common in some of the other recipes that I've seen, but it makes sense in how this cake comes together. Some bake the cake and then they add the topping. That's a customary way to, you know, add a topping to a cake, but in this case, you arrange the batter in the pan and you lightly spoon the topping over the batter and you bake it all together with the topping present. Then they do something else novel, which is unusual. In this cake, there's a bottom cake and a top cake, and there's soft filling in the middle and custard. In order to ensure that the cake is served well, when they finish baking the top cake, which had the topping on it, they cut it into the pre-arranged slices that you would serve. To assemble the cake, you put the bottom cake on a, on a plate, you spoon the custard on, and then you take the top pieces and you arrange it over top of the custard and kind of push them all together. If you think about this, when you're cutting through the cake, a brioche cake is a little bit firmer than a traditional soft flour-based cake. And if you didn't pre-slice, as you push, you would push down so hard on the top cake in order to cut through it that all the filling would squirt out. So putting the baking uh, topping in over the cake before you bake it and then slicing that allows you to take your knife, put it through the areas where the slices were made, and go down through the filling and slice the bottom of the cake and serve it without squirting. Well, that's pretty cool, isn't it? So bee sting cake. I will have a link to the bakingpan.com's recipe. And... I want to know if you make this. It's, it's a complicated recipe, otherwise I'd recite it here, but it's just too much. What I will say to you is, uh, the most recent recipe that I gave, I got feedback from people there was an error in the website listing of what was in there. I fixed it, but Bob Kloss actually told me he made the cake and it was amazing. Or the tart, it was. It was a chocolate honey caramel tart. Oh, I'm still dreaming of it now. <laughs> so good. So somewhere during the break, I'm hoping that I could put together a bee sting cake and I'll let you know how mine came out. TheBakingPan.com. Look for the link in the show notes. Topping number four, beeswax sunscreen. In this week off, one of the things I had on my to-do list we're on the cusp of creating some products of the hive with beeswax. We rendered a bunch of it this year. One of the products I want to make is homemade sunscreen. I should say that some people look at me and try to guess my age, and they always think I'm younger than I am, which is nice. And I attribute to, as a teenager, I had problems with my skin would break out in a rash, especially if I were out in the sun. And the dermatologist was emphatic that it was sun exposure related. All through my teenage years and formative years, this condition went on and I always wore a lot of sunscreen and lip balm with SPF. It was ingrained on me and I think that has a little something to do with it. And I am really um, 
try to be very good. Yeah, I've had a sunburn here and there, but uh, I'm good with it. But, you know, I think about sunscreen commercially like any products in our lives loaded with chemicals and wonder, could we employ a, a more natural solution? In order to create a homemade sunscreen, I did what I always do, days of research. <laughs> the short of it is this could be a folly. Is there are a number of common sense summaries that say you can't beat a commercial sunscreen. It has been engineered for the purpose, going back to what I said before about the rooting stuff, and the access to ingredients and engineering that they put in makes it impractical, impractical that you could make something as good at home. But still, I think because it's a product of the hype, I want to try it. More for the experience. And, you know, we're also going to make lip balm, soft and hard soaps, hand cream, lotion bars. And they're all kind of the same ingredients, so it's not that much of a stretch just to make up some sunscreen. Sunscreen is pretty much a simple lotion with zinc in it. It has selective ingredients that bring both the texture and protection. I kind of remember my sister oiling her skin up when she was younger because she needed to look nice and wanted a tan. Baby oil, coconut oil, things, you know, were employed in her quest. As it turns out, some of those oils actually provide SPF. And that was kind of one of the surprises I learned along the way here. I don't really want to stretch this out, so let me share a few pointers and then I'll tell you something about the recipe I chose. I looked at well over two dozen recipes and honestly, they don't differ that much. It is the same when you're trying to compare lip balm and lotion recipes. They usually have the same ingredients in different proportions. And some of them swap this out for another thing, but primarily there are also quantity differences too. Some recipes just make huge batches and others vary in, you know, the ratio of different ingredients. So I'll explain that in a second. When it comes to ratios, most of the recipes for this stuff employ three primary parts. An ingredient that is an oil, but it is solid at room temperature. Sometimes these are referred to as butters. An ingredient that's an oil, but is liquid at room temperatures, and they're typically considered the liquid component of the concoction. And then you have beeswax, of course, to provide structure and texture. What makes them personal is the ratio of the core components. Maybe too much of the liquid in the compound feels greasy, too much wax and the lotion will not spread and it'll be stiff, maybe it's sticky. I honestly don't know what the proper ratio is for sunscreen, so I'm going to make small batches to try it out. If you're making lip balm, Beekeeper Forms will tell you the balance of ingredients to get the proper feel is three parts of the liquid oil, one part beeswax, one part solid butter. And then you can add a few drops of scent, such as essential oils. I saw an experiment in my travels where someone tested the outcome of oil to wax ratios. Now they simply used olive oil and beeswax and what they ended up with, to cut to the chase, is one part wax of four parts oil was a good balance. What they ended up with is the wax was solid, but not stiff. 
And the slip was good, meaning the oil overcame the grabby feel when you have too much wax, which ends up feeling sometimes sticky in the mixture. But the melt speed was not fast enough, or not too fast, I mean. And it was not too slow. It was described as average. You know, Goldilocks, just right. Like when you're running a tube of a lip balm over your lips, you want it to flow, but you don't want it to be greasy and slimy. Get it? If you think about the basic ratios, my simple math shows that three part liquid oil plus one part solid butter is four and that it is mixed with one part beeswax. In the end, I settled on recipes where the overall ingredients for my sunscreen were in that ballpark. And I saw some of them that I rejected because they sure looked like they had a lot of oil in them. If I think about sunscreen versus plain lotion, if you want to make a sunscreen, do consider that you're creating a lotion and pretty much stirring in zinc to help with protection. And that sounds simple, but there's a few points to call out. If I come back to the SPF factor, or the sun protection factor, that's what SPF stands for. If you're going to select different ingredients for liquid oil, butters, and such, you should choose some that help with the SPF. Going back to my sister situation, a common ingredient in uh, lotions is coconut oil. And it turns out, I didn't know this, coconut oil has an SPF of 8. Coconut oil is a pretty reasonable choice. People like the coconut smell. It's what they're used to. But another thing that people want for their skin is olive oil. Also an SPF of 8. And then if you look at common ingredients for products of the hive, another choice on the list is often almond oil. But SPF of almond oil ranks as a 5, so I would choose one of the other two. It's not a huge difference, but perhaps in the case of making sunscreen, the better choice would be to use coconut oil. It has that nice fragrance for sunscreen and a higher SPF. Now the key recommended add-in for sunscreen, of course, is zinc. I think about sunscreens of my youth, you know, when you put sunscreen on and your skin was white, you had to rub it in. That's the zinc. But I think it's a good thing because, you know, if you missed any spots. Instead of the chemical soup in commercial brands, almost all the homemade variations call for the addition of zinc as the primary active ingredient. They don't have the other stuff. And to be specific, there's a special variation of zinc employed, a special formulation of zinc oxide that is non-nano, non-nano. It's important to use this if you're using zinc in your formula. It's ground differently so that it does not absorb through your skin, as that's not desired. Now, I have to say something about add-ins. Most time you want to consider some sort of fragrance, Almost all recipes prescribe some form of essential oil to use. That makes a lot of sense, but there's a shorter side that you should check and make sure which essential oils you choose, as some are known to interfere with SPF. The biggest example are citrus-based essential oils. They should be avoided. No lemon, no lime, no orange, things like that. They actually cause you to get a sunburn. They're called photoactive or something like that. I, I'm sorry, the word escapes me. 
Many of the product of the hive recipes, whether it's for lip balm or other things, including sunscreen, call for vitamin E. There's a misnomer here. They're often claimed for the purpose of a preservative, but they're really there to be, as my understanding, an antioxidant. And it's usually listed as optional, so to each his own, I guess. The last ingredient that deserves a call-out for sunscreen lotion is something called carrot oil. Prior to doing research, I wasn't aware that there was even such a thing, but now that I know, it turns out carrot oil has a desired property for sunscreen, and it's often included in homemade brands because it's rated at an SPF of 40. Now, all of these SPF properties must be taken with a grain of salt. It is not true to say that if you add them up, if you use two that are eight, one that's 40, and zinc, you're not getting SPF in the 40 numbers. When it comes to carrot oil, for example, concoctions generally call for a smaller addition of it, and therefore, the 40 is kind of fractioned down. Most non-scientific claims suggest that your typical sunscreen formulation will end up as 20 to 30 SPF. And from what I know about commercial brands, that's the general range of almost every product. And I know they claim 40, 45 on some of those commercial products, but when you look at consumer reports, they say that's not true. They just generally can't make something that good and that somebody's fudging the math. As for the active ingredient, whether that number is high or not, often the, the number of SPF often has to do with how much zinc oxide you put in. Zinc oxide, as the primary ingredient, is a sunblock, meaning it reflects or scatters rays of the sun. So it stands to reason that the more of it you have on your skin, the more effective it would be. And zinc oxide blocks both UVA and UVB rays. There's a general rule of how much zinc oxide you could put in your recipe to up the SPF factor while still having a product that's not pasty. From what I read, you want to be about 10 to 15% of the base. If you're higher than that, the product's really not appealing. As an example, say you wanted to make a sunscreen with SPF 20 and you were counting on zinc oxide to do it all. To get the desired SPF of the base product would need 20%. That means four parts lotion, all the ingredients, to one part zinc oxide. Since four plus one makes five, and if you round that up to 100%, one is 20%. Do you follow me there? I think that's... Did I do that math right? I don't think I did that math right. It would be... Uh, anyway, that... <laughs> This is so long, I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> Since we established that our oils bring some SPF to the party, one could surmise that you could scale back on the zinc oxide and still have a good product. The general guide is for SPF 12 to 19% to make zinc oxide 15% of your total recipe. Will that fit the bill? The answer is yes. Puts you in the ballpark. This is why I say 12 to 19% SPF is will will make it for you quote the skin cancer foundation considers spf of 15 or higher acceptable uvb protection for normal everyday activity 
and SPFs of 30 or higher acceptable for extended or intense outdoor exposures, end quote. So maybe what you end up with is not SPF 30, but for what it lacks, what they say is you could just apply it more frequently. Ironically, after all this research, what did I think was a good recipe? <laughs> it turns out that they were so diverse, I couldn't figure out which one to choose. And I went a different way to find the answer that helped me commit. I found a professionally designed recipe that was promoted by the Ministry of Health in Canada as part of a program to promote melanoma skin cancer awareness. I'm going to use the recipe that they shared. It is a half cup of olive oil, a quarter cup of liquid coconut oil, a quarter cup of melted beeswax, two tablespoons of zinc oxide, one teaspoon of vitamin E, two tablespoons of shea butter, and 24 drops of essential oil. I look at that recipe and I think I would make a change. For me personally, I purchased some of that carrot oil, so I'm going to scale back on the olive oil just a touch. I'm going to cut the olive oil by half and use a quarter cup of it, and I'm going to substitute carrot oil for the rest. Now, they called for heliochrysum and myrrh essential oils. I don't have either one of those. I think I'm going to go more conventional with lavender, and I might even put some mint in there. So there's one last thing to say before I go off and make it. Being that it's homemade, it's not going to last as long as some of the commercial ones. I think we're going to make a small test batch for now, being it's winter, and then make it in earnest in spring so I can get as much shelf life as possible. I think a lot of people try to keep their regular commercial sunscreen for season after season, and it becomes completely ineffective after a short period of time, too. And I think the recommendation is you should buy new sunscreen, even if there's stuff left over, every season. Did you know that? In the case of this, you can prolong the sunscreen by putting it in the refrigerator. So homemade sunscreen, do you have any experience or pointers after hearing all of that? If so, give me a shout. Kevin at bkcorner.org. It's the email where you can reach me. I know I did not say anything about what I'm going to put it in, whether it will be creamy or not. I don't know the answers to that yet. I haven't gotten there. I just found the formula. I guess I'll have to report back after we do it, because it's all one great experiment as we venture more into getting experience with products of the hive this winter. One of the objectives of the time block. One last aside, I saw some recipes for sunscreen bars. In short, they tweaked the formula to make a lotion bar with zinc. This is another way you could go, but it said you really had to rub it in to get it to cover your skin, and the bar could become sticky if you don't have it right. And You know, I guess I'm just going to focus on sunscreen lotion, and then after we get that perfected, if we have more time, we'll come back and make some bars out of them. So I'll put a link to mnbc.ca. Uh, it's a, a long link where you can find the recipe for sunscreen that I chose in the show notes. 
And there's a whole host of other things that I could tell you about. Uh, you know, actually, I just thought of one more thing that I have to throw in the pile. I mentioned not to use specific kind of uh, essential oils, the citrus-based ones. But there's another part about citrus oils that, or oils in general, whether you're making um, food, where they always tell you, put your vanilla in later, and so on. I, I'm straying, so let me come back to the point. The volatiles in your essential oils will cook off if you put them in hot wax or any kind of melted concoction. So take your products, melt them down, pull them off, and let them cool to 110 degrees. That's a generally safe area. And then after they cool, then add in your essential oil and your vitamin E. Certain products, let's take lavender for example. There's a chart out there, by the way. I'll see if I can provide a link to one of them that tells you that certain ones will uh, wreck the volatiles, the beneficial parts of the essential oils, if you get them too hot. And you should only add them to liquids that are below a specific temperature. I thought lavender was like 150 degrees. But there are some of them more common that you would use that would be wrecked if you put them in 120 degrees Fahrenheit or higher temperatures. So that's why the recommendation of 110 makes sense. At that point, things are still liquid enough that you can add the volatiles and pour your lip balms or whatever you're going to use. So a recipe for homemade sunscreen. And again, if you try it out, let us know. Local Hive Report. Given that... Uh, this episode's going so long, I have more time to prep some stuff. I'll be brief with this. I was out on Christmas Day looking at my hives. Everything looked really good. They were all flying. Um, even on colder days, there was a day where it was 38 degrees the other day, and I saw the bees flying from the poly hive. Just a couple of them doing cleansing flights and stuff. I always thought that the bees would be dormant, but it's pretty interesting. Now, if I look at the hive weights, they're not dropping. And one thing that I've learned universally from Bob Kloss and mine is a pound a week. That's about how much they have. No matter whether it's hot out or cold out, that's how much they consume. So I'm not really consume, cur, consumed. I'm not really concerned that the hives are going crazy and consuming all their food. In fact, I'm optimistically confident that I don't need to feed my bees at all this winter, that they'll have more than enough stores because I took care of them really well in fall, thank you COVID, um, to ensure they had enough food. But of course I'll check them in early February or whatever. So local hive report, really nothing much to say other than they're all hanging in so far. I did go out and shoot some FLIR images of my hives. And they all are uh, looking pretty good from what I could tell. What was interesting is the other day when all the bees were flying, nothing was flying in the laying's hive. Now, normally you would be concerned about that. When you have seven hives and six of them are flying and one of them there's nothing going on. I want to tell you that don't be concerned. Sometimes hives just don't fly. That's the way they are. I know that hive's live because I shot it with the FLIR camera and I could see the heat signature. They're in the 
upper left-hand side of the box against the wall. And I have no fear that the hive did not survive. It's just they weren't flying that day. So I wanted to share that with everybody. I also wanted to talk real quick about the FLIR. If you buy a FLIR camera for your phone or whatever, when you're shooting your pictures, make sure you walk around the hive. I know some of the hives that the colony shows up from the front, but if you took it from the back, you'd see nothing and vice versa. And the other thing is you should shoot it on really dark days or in the dark, not during the day. If the, the sun hits the hive and warms the face of the hive, you're going to get false readings. should take it in the cold, in the dark, and know that reflective surfaces like the metal on the top of the roof are going to come back at you. Don't be confused that the bees are in the top underneath that. All reflective surfaces are going to come back. So if you happen to use a FLIR. Now some people want to know, well, how do I know if my bees are alive? You can listen with this death scope. You could take a boroscope. You could look for signs. A lot of times when a colony is in the throes of winter, if they get a warm day, the, the undertakers will bring out some dead bees or there'll be dead bees on your landing. Go out on a cold day, clean all your landing off, and then when you get to the next day, look for signs of dead bees at the entrance. A lot of times what that means is the undertakers were carrying them out, and you know the colony's still alive. And the other thing that I'll say to you is, go in every once in a while and check your hives to make sure that the holes aren't plugged. And if you don't have, especially if you don't have an upper ventilation like we talked about earlier. So local hive report. Everything good so far. It's still early. Uh, we haven't crossed into January, but I'm looking forward to it. And I have one more commentary to head into uh, for closing comments related to this. So closing comments, I want to close the show out, but I have not talked at all this year about oxalic acid vaporization treatments. The traditional way to do this is with a wand. Put a little bit in there, you hook it to a car battery. But this year I bought a device. I've talked about it a couple times on the show, but I've never used it yet. And the time is coming. Now, it's been cold. The bees have been on the cluster. But this Saturday, if I look at the forecast out, it's the day after New Year's. It looks like we'll have a possible 60-degree day. The forecast in the record that I looked at this morning says that the day will have a high of 59. And it is going to present my best opportunity to go ahead and oxalic acid vaporize my bees. If I'm going to do this, I think it is one of my objectives this year, I should get with the program, especially since I bought the vaporizer. And from a timing standpoint, I need to do it now. Because what I know is that in early February, the brood miners often show that they start to build brood. And I don't want to impact early brood. So I think this Saturday is the first day uh, for doing my treatments. And i got to go look at my device and get more familiar with it, how the cup works, and also figure out what my doses will be for oxalic acid for my smaller hives. There are six frames. You know, conventional one I got, but all the other ones I kind of have to make sure I put the right amount in. As far as other things going on, 
that's about it. I don't see a, a run of beekeeping meetings. I said this last time, and people sent me stuff. So do send me anything you have. Um, I, I have a handful of things that I'm going to focus on. In fact, uh, tomorrow I'm going to be doing a new version of the Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association website. We're moving it to a different hosting platform and going to switch the technology. And yeah, all kinds of projects to do this week. Hopefully we won't run out of time. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, they can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone, and be well.